Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to Christ Church on this um, Martin Luther King weekend, and this big football weekend, and this uh, brisk weekend. Special welcome to those joining us from Crossroads and Highland Park in the 01. Uh, I have, uh, on several occasions, I have been profoundly impacted by Dr. King and his, uh, his life and leadership. The first one was as a college student in the history class when I ran across letters from a Birmingham jail. If you've not read that or not read that recently, I would commend it to you. It's, uh, it's available online. It's relatively brief and very powerful. And I, I try to read it at least once every couple of years. Um, then shortly after 9-11... Uh, I decided I, I needed to understand the Middle East better than I did. And so I dove into a half dozen, maybe eight or ten books, just trying to understand the history and the, the, the sides and what was going on and what the issues were. And, and it was, it's very, of course, complicated and the problems are intractable and blame goes in virtually every direction. Discouraging, but I found myself at one point wondering, how things might have been different if instead of, uh, instead of the leaders that were present on the ground, instead of, for instance, a Yasser Arafat, there had been a Dr. King uh, providing sort of moral leadership in a different direction. And then uh, about six months ago, I was uh, watching a news report about Greece and the economic implosion that was taking place there. And I was also just reading up on... Ferguson and Baltimore and Cleveland and, and obviously Chicago has its own tensions. And it's, it suddenly struck me, you know, if there is civil unrest uh, around here, I'm not ready for that. I mean, if I'm supposed to take some position of trying to reconcile things or to lead the church in a way that's helpful and grace-filled and other things. You know, I got trained to deal with people in crisis and maybe marriages in crisis and families in crisis and maybe even a church in crisis, but nothing beyond that. No, not a community, not a country. It was just like, wow, I'm not ready. And I, I, I mean, this was, this was very sobering. So I started calling my friends who were pastors of churches and I said, hey, are you thinking about this? Are you ready for this? I mean, I'm, I'm looking for some coaching here. Nobody had anything. So eventually, uh, I secured some foundation money from a foundation out west and, and convened a gathering of, of uh, a small gathering, mostly senior pastors of large churches, to say, okay, uh, are we ready? What would it look like? How does the church lead in these kinds of, of times? And are you ready to lead in a time like this? And so in, the, in the, the, the months leading up to that, I was reading all kinds of things about the future and trends and projections and all this stuff, which will inform the series next fall. Uh, we're going to look in Daniel, but we'll just sort of look at what's going on and facing forward. And what does it look like to be a person of faith in a world that is perhaps fraying a little bit more and the courage and the hope and those things. So I, I was reading up on that. And again, I was reading Dr. King and I just was so amazed at what he did. And I'm like, I mean, Dr. King died in his thirties, right? He's leading in his 20s and in his 30s and wins the Nobel Peace Prize at 35. I mean, it was just like, oh my goodness. Uh, so very 
impressed by him. Now, I just, you know, we're, we're not here to worship Dr. King. I mean, he's, I'm not of the opinion that he didn't do anything wrong, right? I mean, obviously he did. There's only one person that doesn't do something wrong. There's one person who is sent by God as his son, who fulfills all the requirements of the law, whose life and whose death we study, whose teaching we want to embrace, uh, and that is Jesus. But I think there are lessons to be learned from other people. And I'm, I'm particularly interested uh, on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend to, to see if there's something to be learned by his ability to align people around a cause. And I'm thinking, of course, of the church. So I'm thinking about the church a lot because it's that time of year. You know, we just have come through 2015, and so we got lots of data, and I'm looking at, you know, how things worked, and, and uh, we've got an elder retreat next weekend, and so it's planning and strategy time, and I, I've been reading some books on the church, and then this, this past week I was down in, at a conference, uh, and I was listening to a young, I was listening to a guy, not a young guy, I was listening to, to, uh, to Ying Kai, a Taiwanese uh, church planter, who when he was working in Taiwan, uh, every year he would, over the course of the year, he'd lead 50 to 60 people to faith in Christ, and then he'd start a church of 50 to 60 people. And then he got assigned from Taiwan, he got assigned to China. And uh, his, his province that he's in charge of now is 50 million people. And he says, okay, well, uh, so I lead about 50 people to Christ a year. Uh, if I do this for 10 years, we're at 500. Yeah, that doesn't work. Uh, in, a, in this area of 50 million. And so he, he sort of goes back to the Great Commission and he looks at this and comes out and, and sets in motion something, sort of a, he calls it training a trainer. So he, he doesn't like the term disciple. He thinks it's overused. He says, we don't want disciples. We, want, we don't want church members. We want trainers. We want people who are, who are part of a, of a system that is going to see the church grow. And he sets in motion something that eventually leads to about 18,000 churches starting in a few years so I, I'm reading all this stuff, I'm thinking about all this stuff, and, and when it gets complicated for me, I go back uh, to the um, famous Vince Lombardi, this is a football speech, you know, Lombardi would, would start every season with his team, all of whom were professional athletes, many times Super Bowl champions a year before, and the first day of practice, he would hold out a football, and he'd start, and he'd say, this, gentlemen, is a football, and we play on this field, and it's 100 yards long, and there's two goals, and if you get the ball across, you know, you just would explain the game in the most basic way. So, I want to do my this is a church talk, okay? So there's four questions that seem to me to be pertinent. One, what is a church? Two, what's it supposed to do? Three, how are we doing? And four, so now what? So what is a church? Well, the English word gets used in four different ways. First of all, they refer to a building. Did you see the church down the street? Secondly, to refer to an event, right? Are you going to church this weekend? Third, to refer to an institution, right? You can make a donation to the church. It's a 501c3 organization. And then fourth, to a community of people who line up around a set of beliefs and an allegiance and a love for Jesus Christ. Uh, this, of course, is the way... We want to think about a church. And so Christ Church gathers 
several times, right? It gathers in Gray's Lake on 137. It gathers in Highland Park at, at uh, Green Bay and Laurel. It gathers in Lake Forest at 1643. But then Christ Church scatters throughout the community because you and me, we are the church. Now, um, there are other things that we can say about the church. Uh, one is that it, it, it gets set in motion by Jesus, and then it unfolds, uh, and we get reports on it from uh, various commentators. So it's, it's initially set in motion. Uh, the, the term, the Greek word ekklesia, which was a political term, it referred to, so it wasn't used very often when Jesus sort of lifts it out of Greek literature, but it refers to, to movements. And so the first time we see this word is in Matthew 16. So Jesus is uh, speaking and he turns to his disciples and he says, uh, what's, what's the word on the street, right? Who do people say that I am? What, what's social media saying right now about me? And so they say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He goes, okay, well, that's interesting. And what do you say? Who do you think I am? And this is where Peter offers his famous confession, and he says, well, you are the Messiah. You're the Christ, right? The Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says to Peter, good answer, Peter, and I know uh, that that answer is better than you could come up with on your own. You were blessed because clearly you had help coming up with that answer. God in heaven told you to say that. And he says, and, and I'm going to change your name. This is such a significant moment. He called him Simon before this. Such a significant moment, Simon, that I'm going to change your name to Petros, rock. And on this rock, on this concept, on this declaration, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? And, uh, and, and that is, that's the best we can tell, it's the first time the term gets used. And then Jesus launches this movement. And it's amazing. I mean, among the amazing things that Jesus does... He launches with this relatively unimpressive group of people. He launches a movement that will continue to grow even to today. Right? And this, and we, we know from, from what we read in the book of Acts and what we read in other places that this, that this group will come to meet on a weekly basis and they'll meet around several things. They'll meet around uh, a prayer. They'll meet around the apostles' teaching. They'll meet around the sacraments of baptism and communion. And they'll meet to, to encourage one another to love and good deeds. And then it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow out from there. And, and, and it will, again, it'll keep growing. Don't be impressed with, you know, Google and Amazon and, uh, you know, Apple. Hey, yes, these are, these are impressive uh, organizations that have started. But it's, the, the organizations, the companies that were big in the 80s generally weren't big in the 90s. And the companies that were big in the 90s generally aren't big 10 years later, right? Somebody new comes along. For something to continue to go and grow over 2,000 years... That's impressive. And the church has become, you know, the, the largest, the oldest, the most geographically and ethnically diverse organization on the planet. And, and this is what Jesus set in motion. And, and we, we read about this in several places. Uh, I want to I read something out of the book of Acts. 
So we have been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. When Luke finishes writing the Gospel of Luke, uh, which is on the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, right? when he finishes that, he just turns the page and keeps right on going. And he writes about what happens after Christ's ascension into heaven. And he tells us how the church grows over the course of the next three decades. Right? So the Gospels end, and the, there's a little bit of a better ending point in Matthew's Gospel. The Gospels end with Jesus commissioning his followers. So Matthew 28, uh, 18, and following is, we refer to it as the Great Commission. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, or quite literally, as you are going. The, the, the construction in the Greek suggests that, that the, the emphasis isn't on the go. It's, that's just assumed. That, you know, it's just assumed you're going to talk about me because I've come back from the dead. As you are talking about me with other people, make disciples, right? Okay, not just church members, not just people that check the box. Make disciples of all nations, people everywhere, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's how the Gospels end, and then the first chapter in Acts picks up right after that. So the disciples, they actually hang around there for a little bit, and this angel eventually comes and says, because Jesus, after he says this, he ascends up into heaven, and the angels come and they go, uh, what are you looking at? Time to get busy, right? Time to get going. You had an assignment. So they, they head, as they were instructed, they head to Jerusalem, they gather in this upper room, and they're sort of cowering. They're, they're confused. They're a little perplexed. What's going to happen? And, th- and then in Acts 2, we read about Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and empowers them, right? And they, they're, they're now emboldened and they spill out into the streets and they're talking in languages that they've not learned. They're telling people about Christ in the language that they understand. People are signing up for faith. And then uh, Peter, who previously has denied that that even knows Jesus, Peter steps forward in this crowd and he gives this incredible sermon and thousands of people come to faith. And then shortly after that, we're given this report about how things are happening in the church. So Acts 2.42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. So these are these things I just mentioned. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, encouraging one another, to the breaking of bread, that would be communion, that's the sacraments, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, <clears throat> in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we get glimpses of the church. This is, this is as it's being formed. And, and then throughout the next uh, really 30 years, we see as the church grows from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, it begins to spread out. The, the second quote that I want to give you on the church comes from uh, Julian the Apostate, who I mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, in the parable that Jesus told on the shrewd manager. 
this is the perplexing uh, parable in which Jesus seems to, uh, seems to applaud. Well, he does. He doesn't seem to. He applauds the, uh, the, the actions of this dishonest, embezzling trust fund manager, right? And everybody sort of scratches their head and says, why does Jesus commend this guy? And I said, well, look, there's a difference between commending a dishonest person who's clever for being clever than commending a clever person for being dishonest. Jesus doesn't commend the dishonesty. He commends a person who is dishonest for being clever. And he says he's using the resources that he has, gifts, abilities, time, money, talent, connections. He's using that that he's got right now to secure for himself a greater future. And I wish my followers were thinking more like he was and they were taking advantage of what they've got today to secure for themselves a greater glory in heaven. So I mentioned in that sermon that uh, many people were confused by this, including uh, Julian the Apostate, who was an emperor in Rome after Constantine. So the passage I just read, Acts 2 says, everybody found favor. The, the church had favor with the people. Um, in Acts chapter 3, persecution against the church breaks out. And that persecution will go on for the next 300 years. It will officially be Roman policy to say you cannot be a Christ follower. It's an illegal faith. You can lose your life. Of course, Christians are you know, fed to the lions in the Colosseum games. Nero will use them to light uh, as candles to light his garden. Uh, Christians will be persecuted. They'll, you know, they'll Lots of bad things will happen to people of faith. In the early 4th century, Constantine uh, becomes the emperor and sort of in the final act of uniting everything under his realm, he has a conversion uh, experience to Christ. And, And one of the first things that he'll do as emperor is issue this edict of toleration. So after 300 years of it being illegal to be a Christian, it no longer is. Constantine is followed by emperors, some of whom follow Christ, some of whom do not. Julian the Apostate is one who does not. He, he doesn't like Christians. And so I mentioned that one of the things that he says about Christians is that their, their leader, Jesus, teaches people to be dishonest. Okay? So that's where I got that quote from Julian the Apostate. Here's another quote from Julian the Apostate. He's writing a letter, this is taken from a letter, and he says, It is disgraceful that when no Jews ever have to beg, and, and he's using Jews here to refer to Christians, there's, a, there's confusion in, not everybody understood that not all Jews were Christians and that all Christians were Jews. So the, the Christians were a sect within Judaism, that's how it was understood uh, within the Roman world. So it's disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, the impious Galileans, so that would be the Christians, Jesus of Galilee, and so they were called uh, at various times Galileans. The impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. And all men see that our people lack aid. Teach those of the Hellenistic faith to contribute to the public service of this uh, in this way. So what, what Julian Apostate is saying is, you know, this really makes me mad. These Christians 
they're not only taking care of their poor, they're taking care of our poor as well. And it makes us look bad. People see that they're the ones that are doing all the good stuff. Can you not teach our people of the Hellenistic faith, the Greek faith, all the, the pantheon of Greek gods, can you not teach them to be kind and loving and to, and to reach out and to help people? Okay. So uh, this, is, this is an example of... of what the church is. It was this community of people right, who, who align around a set of beliefs, around, around a faith and an allegiance to Jesus Christ who would meet weekly and who would then uh, spread out and try and take the message of Christ out to other people and the love of Christ. So, what is the church? The church is this institution that Jesus commissioned. It's also worth noting that the church is God's plan. Okay? So it's not our idea. We look to Scripture to understand what the church is. When Jesus took the term ecclesia uh, out of the Greek language and, and ascribed it to his followers, there wasn't anything like it at the time. Right? So the church is God's plan. He commissioned it and set it in motion. Um, there are other things that we could say about the church. For instance, um, Peter Drucker, the management thinker, guru, um, considered by many to be one of the, the, the more significant thinkers of the 20th century, author of 50 books on all kinds of topics. Shortly before he died, Drucker was asked, uh, what do you think about the church? And uh, Drucker, most people didn't know this, but for the last 20 or 30 years of his life, he spent almost all his time working with nonprofits because he was much more interested in them than for-profit ventures. And he said, well, he said, look, the, the first half of the 20th century, the most significant sociological phenomenon was the rise of the corporation, especially the multinational corporation. That's the most significant thing that happened in the first half of the 20th century. But he said in the second half of the 20th century, the most significant thing to happen has been the church. And he said, and it is the most effective organization out there in getting it done. A couple months ago, I ran across a, a study done at the, by a sociologist at the University of Virginia who wanted to measure the impact of the church. And so uh, he looked at 12 churches in the city of Philadelphia. And he tried to measure the, the, the contributions the church Made those 12 churches made to Philadelphia, you know, in terms of money that was paid out in salaries that then went into taxes and services that were offered, you know, weddings and funerals and counseling and, and coaching and various things and the support of families and, you know, money to the poor and all this. And he came away, this, this study, they came away and said, the value of these 12 churches to Philadelphia is $51.5 million a year. And they said the value of this church of 300, an Episcopal church, this is $1.7 million of good to the city. There was a Roman Catholic parish of 7,000. They said this is $22.4 million of good to the community. Right? This, is, this is what the church is doing. It's doing a lot of things that people don't see. Uh, there are other things we could say about it. Bill Hybels sort of famously says the local church is the hope of the world. Um, there's, there is an entity formed by God to be of his people who are to meet together for a variety of reasons. Let me push on that, why exactly we meet. So 
It's a community of faith. That's what the church is. What is it supposed to do according to God? Uh, Lest there be any confusion, uh, we have tried to be very specific in our answer to that question over the last 15 years. We said that uh, the church, the, the assignment of the church, our mission is is to lead people into life-changing relationships with God and with others by proclaiming the good news and engaging in good works. Okay? So we have these, we have takes two wings for the plane to fly, right? We're to, we're to proclaim the good news and we're to engage in good works. This proclamation uh, piece of the good news refers first and foremost to what we would, we would say is the gospel, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we would say, in addition to that very specific message, that everything that Jesus taught and everything that we find contained in this book is important. That's what Jesus says when he's commissioning his disciples, teach them to obey everything that I have uh, have commanded. Right. So it's it's a bigger piece than just the gospel, but we would say the good news primarily is the gospel, and then it's everything else. So that is what we are to be proclaiming, we're to be announcing, we're to be sharing. We also are to be involved in uh, doing good works. Now, for the record, uh, again, we think we got to do both. Some churches do one and not the other, right? Some churches do the other and not the one. We're saying, you got to do both. Jesus did both. But we also recognize that there is some logical order to the way we state this. Uh, that is proclaim the good news and engage in good works. And we say proclaim the good news first because, not by the way, because the, the spiritual is more important than the physical. The Bible never teaches that. But because the eternal is more important than the temporal. And because there's lots of people that are doing good works. There's lots of people out there trying to get clean water for people that don't have any and building hospitals and tutoring children. There's lots of people doing good works. The only people that are talking about Jesus and eternal life are Christ's followers. So there's a certain priority that we place on that. Thirdly, we also say if you really want uh, to mobilize people to do good, (laughs) to to give their money away, to volunteer their time, to, to put the needs of others ahead of themselves then having them follow Jesus is the best way. And it's, it's fun to occasionally hear that concession. Uh, one of the foreign correspondents for the New York Times, uh, Nicholas Kristof, is, is not a fan of Christians. Uh, he says, at times, he said very derogatory things about Christians. Uh, weak, uh, weak people easily led, and I mean other things that he has, he has said, He's never pastored a church, by the way, I'll say that. But Christoph said, Christoph uh, wrote a few months ago that uh, at dinner parties in New York, he's used to hearing people knock Christians. And he says, I, I found myself saying, he goes, you got to understand two things. He says, first of all, he says, when I'm going to some horrific part of the world, some war-torn region, some place decimated by war or disaster. He said the plain is, would be empty if it were not for the Christians. He said they're, they're spending their own money and they're going there just out of this sense of, 
I, I need to help people. Whether they believe like I believe or not, he says, they're not holding back their, their aid. They're saying, people need help, I'm going. And he says, I just can't get over that. And secondly, he said, they're the ones that are giving all the money. He said, so all of my friends are, are saying, somebody needs to give money, but they're not giving any money. They're looking for the government to give the money. And he says, and it's the Christians that are giving all the money. So if you want to see more people involved in doing all the good work, it makes sense to see them come to faith. So we say, proclaiming the good news first, and at the same time we say, both of these matter. Independent of each other, we've got to do both of these. So that leads to the third question. What is the church, community of faith, believers around Jesus? What is our assignment? Proclaim the good news and engage in good works. How are we doing? Okay. Well, first of all, we have to narrow down the we. Some people would say there are two billion Christians on the planet. I think that's slightly inflated. Uh, it's a little bit too generous of a definition. So let's just, but let's just talk about this local congregation. How are we doing? Well, <clears throat> the next thing we have to say is that it's very hard to measure this stuff. Right? The things that are easy to measure, numbers, nickels, and noses, most people agree is not really what we're after. And, and the things we want to measure, like you know, a change in someone's heart, uh, grace, love, uh, a decrease in domestic violence, a decrease in anger, right? those kinds of things, those are hard to measure. That aside, uh, there's reasons to be encouraged. So I mentioned we've got a planning retreat coming up this week. So three years ago, uh, we said that we wanted to double down on, uh, on the work of the church. We wanted, to, we wanted to double the proclamation by having more sites and seeing more people come to faith. And we wanted to double down on the good works. And we specifically said what we're going to measure are external service hours. So we, we keep track. It's pretty much a back-of-the-napkin kind of number, but we keep track of internal service hours. There's like 300 positions that we need to fill every week for the church to run. So small group leaders and ushers and greeters and musicians and elders and deacons and lighthouse teachers and all of that. So we keep track of that, and that's a really big number. Thank you. But then we also said uh, a few years ago, we, we wanted to ramp up our external service hours. So this is, you know, volunteering through North Chicago Community Partners or PADS or Love Inc. Or, you know, any, any of the number of, of organizations out there that we've, we're funneling people in to serve. And in 2013, we, we collected, we tallied 8,000 externally focused volunteer service hours. And we said, okay, well, we want to double that. Uh, in the next three years. We want to double that to 16,000. And we actually did more than that in the last, uh, in the last year. So th- th- all the programs that we were working with continued, and then we started new programs, or, or there was some of this started the, the Hands of God Serving Ministry, HOGS, right? Mostly men, some women that are doing very practical help for home maintenance, for shut-ins for single parents, you know, just coming alongside to help them that way. Uh, there's the cars ministry that got started. So if you don't have a car, uh, life is really hard in, the, in, in this place that we live. And so they said, well, we want to service and provide free maintenance 
for those that might struggle to be able to understand that or to afford that. So a lot of single moms, we want to provide free maintenance for cars. And we want to provide cars. So we've had cars donated, and the cars are then fixed up and given to somebody in need, or the cars are sold, and then the money is used to buy parts so that the other cars can be fixed up. And all the labor, of course, is donated by people at the church. So there's the cars ministry. There's, uh, there's the justice center that got started, right, at the, at the Crossroads campus uh, this past year. And so th- this is dozens of people providing love and encouragement and practical advice and prayer support, not legal advice, but it's legal issues that people come in with and, and, and they're getting coaching on whether or not they actually have a legal issue and they need an attorney or not, right? So it's not legal advice that's being offered. It's encouragement and love and hope and some direction. And if you need an attorney, they get recommended to an attorney. And then there's the Stepping Stones ministry, right? To, to try and come alongside and help women and in some cases children that are being commercially sexually exploited. So there's, there's those ministries in addition to, you know, the others that are going on that, that you support. Donations to, to, to Christ Church supports, right? The rope house for people coming out of prison. And the prison ministry and the alpha ministry in the prison. And InterVarsity and Young Life and all those things. And please understand, these ministries are not simply doing good work, right? Almost all of them are also sharing the good news, But we're just talking about, we're trying to measure the volunteer hours, your service. And so we wanted to double it. We doubled it. Uh, Thank you. Guess what? We want to double it again. And I believe we can, and I believe we should. Uh, I believe it is is a God-honoring thing to do. I believe everybody wins when you serve, starting with you. And uh, it's just a good investment in light of eternity. So there's reasons to be encouraged by what's going on. There's also more ground to take. Uh, The first half of that equation, the proclaiming the good news, I don't think we do so well. Now, there's good things happening. We had Alpha launch this past week at this campus on Tuesday night, uh, Crossroads campus on Wednesday night. And uh, lots of people were there, good energy, good buzz. Many of you invited your friends, thank you. And uh, there's others, some of you are always inviting people to yeah, a church or your small group or to mops or men's fraternity or to something. And uh, I just heard about the, the, the studies, the small groups at Highland Park have all decided that they're going to meet in their study three times a month. And then the fourth time uh, every month, they're going to have a party. And everybody's to invite one couple. And it's not a party with an agenda. It's just, let's have a dinner party. Let's get together and, and have a party. And then when the question is, so how do you know these people? Oh, well, we're, you know, we all go to the same church. We're in a Bible study. You should come sometime, right? So there's, some of you are thinking strategically about the whole proclamation. But uh, probably not as much as we could be and as we should be. And so... Uh, that leads to the last, what do we do now? And that's where I, sp- I want to be very specific, and I want to set a challenge in front of you. Uh, I want to challenge you over the course of the next weeks and months to really pray for one person that you know that uh, is not connected in a church, that does not know God or is, knows God but has fallen away, and I want you to pray for them. And I want you to uh, 
just, just one. I mean, some of you are overachievers. You can do two. You can do five. I don't care. But I'm saying you want, right? And you're going to pray for them. And I want, you to, I want you to find some way to bless them and, and, and engage with them, right? To invite them to a meal, to invite them to go to a movie or a sporting event or something. To, to truly be a friend. They're not a project. <laughs> They're a friend. They're somebody that God loves. And to bless them and to encourage them. And then look for an opportunity to invite them to take some next step. And I don't know what that is. Maybe you invite them here on Easter uh, maybe you maybe you invite them next time to go to Alpha, or this time maybe you maybe you invite them to read a book. I don't know what it is, but this is something we are called to do. We are to proclaim the good news, and we're to engage in good works. And this is this is the movement that God started to shed His love, His message, His hope, His grace around the world. I want to challenge each of you to invest in somebody and then invite them to take a next step. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you not only love us and you not only have a plan, but there's a strategy behind your plan. It's amazing to think that you are uh, committed to working in and through us, and we just want to be uh, available to that end, that you would use us, uh, that your church, the community of, of people who unite around Jesus, a love and allegiance, a, a belief, uh, that your church would, would increasingly uh, be known as a community of love and, and good works, grace, and aid, and also just a clear explanation of who you are and the opportunity for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, may we be um, ever more faithful and ever more, um, may we make you pleased in terms of the way we live and love and serve as a church. We ask for your blessing on this in Christ's name. Amen.